From DLA Piper, this is the Beyond the Curve podcast. In this episode, DLA Piper partner Ray Williams and senior policy advisor Kirsten Axelson are joined by Dr. Benson Shu of the University of South Dakota Sanford School of Medicine to discuss disparities in telehealth and ways to better serve low-income communities. Hi, this is Ray Williams with DLA Piper. I'm here today to talk with two of my friends, Kirsten and Benson, about telehealth and disparities. Kirsten, Benson, would you introduce yourself? Hello. Thank you, Ray. This is Kirsten Axelson, and I'm a senior policy advisor to DLA Piper and executive secretary of the Preparedness and Treatment Equity Coalition, which brings together life sciences companies, academics, and physicians to identify ways to achieve reforms to the way we measure and deliver health care to achieve greater equity. Hi, my name is Benson Shu. I'm an associate professor of pediatrics at the University of South Dakota, Stanford School of Medicine, and I also serve as the chief scientific officer of PTEC alongside Kirsten in addressing health equities. Thank you, Kirsten and Benson. I know that today we're in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, and it's been almost a year since we've had these stay-at-home orders and the like and certainly a year in which we were able to take a look at how telehealth has affected the patient care and patient treatment. And really, COVID-19 ushered in a rapid shift to telehealth and the flexibilities in the regulation. Benson, I know as a doctor and provider, you probably have used telehealth, correct? Yes. Yes. Are there any particular challenges that you've had when working with patients? Yeah, I think telehealth is interesting when it comes to providing care. It's almost like there's been several generations of telehealth as I progressed in my career. I remember the pre-COVID era, if you will, when talking about telehealth, as a provider, there's a hesitancy to engage with telehealth. How do you read body language? How do you understand the environment of the patient? Are there going to be subtle signals that you're going to miss? Is my stethoscope going to be as good as if I were there? As a pediatrician, how am I going to look effectively in a squirming child? Will the parent be able to hold devices? So there was a lot of, I would say, reservation in the pre-COVID timeframe about doing telemedicine. I think the other reservation that's always in the back of mind is reimbursement. What does this mean if I'm constantly being viewed from a work RVU or each visit means something from a revenue perspective, how does telehealth affect that? And then lastly, where we sit in a rural environment, I work in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, our rural environment lends itself to having entry into multiple states. I'm less than half an hour away from three other states, Minnesota, Iowa, Nebraska. What does that mean for me in this area of licensing and how do I get that settled? So that was pre-COVID. A lot of hesitation. We wish the patients would just come in. We understand that some patients can't and we try to do the best that we can. And then COVID hit. It hit hard too, my friend, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, patients disappeared. And then you realize that in order to have that connection with your patient, you had to do telehealth. You had to do telemedicine. And it was, I dare say, at the very beginning, kind of a wild, wild west. Do we send pictures back and forth? Is texting okay? What's the legal ramifications? And all that's happening 
concurrently as my organization was trying to figure out how do we get devices into the offices? How do we get iPads with a camera into the doc's hands? How do we quickly escalate that? What is the privacy laws around that? So, so much was happening, but the adoption wasn't that bad. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because I had heard early on that Telehealth was really there for the lower income rural communities and that it would change how they were treated. And interestingly, what I have now heard is that for lower income folks, communities, for example, in the urban environment and for rural communities because of the lack of internet service, that telehealth is actually being used more by privileged Mm -hmm. (laughs) individuals than the lower income folks. Is there any truth to that? There's absolute truth to that. So the communities that I serve, the more marginalized communities in this area are our Native American populations. We have several reservations in the state. And I could tell you pre-COVID, often we'll receive a patient into our hospital and we'll get a list of four phone numbers. And the reason we get a list of multiple phone numbers is that the family wasn't sure which number still had minutes. So it was a process of calling, finding disconnected phones, calling, and then ultimately finding a relative or a friend of a friend who had enough minutes on their phone who was next to the family that I could speak with the parents. So you take that concept and extrapolate it into internet access, that doesn't exist. So absolutely, we're basically serving those who previously had the ability to enter a clinic, who now don't, but have infrastructure suitable for fast enough internet that the video works, that I could see the patient. So that's a limited population here. To me, I think working on that is so important. I saw recently that the FCC announced a $100 million investment in expanding telehealth through a pilot program to establish both the telehealth and related services, and particularly for low-income and veterans. And Kirsten, you and I were talking about this a little bit and how that could help us. Yes, it could. Some of the things that Benson mentioned, making sure the reimbursement is there for the providers and making sure that the patients have reliable access to a way to communicate with their provider And then also looking at some of the things that were relaxed during the COVID pandemic and deciding what to make permanent. For example, allowing telehealth visits to be conducted on multiple platforms, not restricting them to certain types of apps, allowing different types of providers. If a nurse is the most appropriate person, then that makes sense to allow the nurse to be reimbursed for a telehealth visit, for example, versus a physician or limiting the requirement to have an in-person visit first before you can be followed up by a telehealth So it's money, but it's also deciding which regulations to keep relaxed and which ones really need to be retained for patient safety. Yeah, it's interesting. I was reading an article that was talking about the use of telehealth in hospitals. Benson, I actually think it was in South Dakota, I could be wrong, where the healthcare system was actually in the patient's room in the hospital and the TVs that were in the rooms were being used for telehealth appointments. Did you hear about that at all? Here in South Dakota, we have a very robust infrastructure among hospital systems. So my healthcare system has relationship with other smaller hospitals throughout the state. And one of the biggest things that we do 
is to be part of their emergency room. So when a patient comes into the ER and they are critically ill or they're needing a service that maybe the local hospital doesn't provide just given its size, they're able to literally press a button and connect with a hospital or ER staff here in Sioux Falls, more of a suburban area, and get access to some specialists that they don't have. So we'll have video access, we'll have voice access, and given the fact that there's already a provider there, usually a general practitioner, they can help us with the exam findings and then the need of any intervention from there. So that kind of connection already exists, and it's something that we really push on on the inpatient basis. Critical care is the other area. EICUs are relatively popular, especially in rural environments as well. So yes, absolutely, but always more can be done. Yeah, and I know one of the issues, obviously, is how do the doctors get paid? So from a telehealth perspective, you're in a hospital bed and the cardiologists and your primary care and others are working as a team on your care and they do a telehealth type of visit with you. I know splitting up that revenue is hard. Yeah. So, Kirsten, I want to ask you a question. You've had two decades of experience working in biopharma and advising clients. How does biopharma view telehealth? There's two key areas where expansion of telehealth could be very critical to access and use appropriate treatment with medicine. One is adherence. Adherence to medicine is abysmal. And adherence simply means that you're taking the medicine as prescribed by your physician In most categories of drugs, about 50% of people drop off within six months, and that includes very serious conditions like HIV, AIDS, or cancer. But again, in areas like cardiovascular disease, lipid management, hypertension, most of the drugs are generic. You can imagine broader use of telehealth to check in on the patient could help to improve adherence. We know that communication and frequent touch points does help to improve adherence. Moreover, when the doctor is the same race as the patient, Patients tend mm-hmm. to be more willing to use preventive health care. So you could think about, especially the point that Benson made about being able to go across state lines, if there was some more flexibility with the provider, you could do a better job of matching the provider and the reminder, or maybe it's a nurse again, for patients who have diabetes or other chronic conditions or conditions like HIV AIDS where adherence is really important and management of the therapy is complex and there could be a lot of other social determinants of health that are affecting that person's ability to get into the doctor. The other main way that telehealth could be transformational to the biopharma industry is to monitor clinical trials that are conducted at home. Mm-hmm. We already saw with the COVID pandemic, a number of clinical trials have been delayed or stopped, a movement that was already underway to shift more clinical trials to a setting that was more convenient for the patient has been accelerated. And again, that could help diversity. Part of why clinical trials have struggled to be more diverse is a lot of the clinical trials are conducted in academic medical centers where the patient population tends to be more white. So this would enable more people to be able to participate from their homes and in their communities. Yeah, I would think we all agree that when we're talking about low-income and rural communities, for the most part, we're talking about Black, Brown, and Native American people within the United States Yes, that's where you've certainly seen the biggest health disparities for COVID, also for everything else, cardiovascular disease, cancer care, the differential in health outcomes and mortality between white, black, Latinx, and some groups of Asian Americans is pretty stark. Yeah. I work in the pharmaceutical medical device industry as a litigator. 
have been doing it for 25 plus years. And as part of telehealth, there is digital health. And I think that is so cool. One of the coolest things that I've seen is a pill slash medical device that you can take, which actually indicates to the doctor that you are compliant with your medication. (laughs) Which I thought because you swallow it, the device inside your stomach throws a signal out to a phone that says, hey, they've taken their medication and that can go to a parent or to a son or daughter to let them know that their elderly parents are actually taking their medication. Benson, in terms of the actual devices that are used in telehealth to help doctors, what are they? (laughs) There are lots. I previously served in a role of senior healthcare leader at my health system, specifically around the use of data analytics and around population health. And I saw vendors come out of the woodwork of all these wonderful, flashy things that can happen. But I think the irony of all of this is that sometimes the less the technology, the better the use, the better the adoption. And when I think about the underserved communities, the populations that I worry about not having adherence, the adherence isn't because they forgot. The adherence is because they couldn't afford. The adherence, they couldn't take time off of work. And in our reservation population, the adherence is because they don't trust us. So I think Mm -hmm. there is a lot of other factors that lead to adoption of technology. And as a result, the simplest technology, texting, voice, maybe a a quick video, sometimes will have the biggest benefit as opposed to trying to push this newfangled technology that we have where we monitor things. At-home monitoring, the Apple Watches, et cetera, I think of two pathways when I think about these really fancy and excellent at-home monitoring. Number one, it serves a population that has fast internet at home two that has disposable income willing to purchase these three it has time and energy and education to allow them to understand how to apply it and what this means and how to interact with it right so there are a lot of just inherent social economics that are tied into adoption of these even though perfect world it'd be great fortunately i often feel that it's directed towards the wrong population Yeah, I completely agree with that. One of the things that I noted during the pandemic from an educational standpoint, that the urban and rural schools, they were having difficulty because the students didn't even have laptops Mm -hmm. to get onto the internet. And then they didn't have internet that was fast enough or any internet at all. So I think some of the internet providers decided that they were going to actually provide high-speed internet in the community centers within these communities and neighborhoods, which was great. So I thought, wow, if there's high-speed internet in these community centers, could there be a telehealth room with internet to help the folks in the community to actually go into the community center and then have their telehealth appointment in the community center because people are more likely, I think, to go do that than go to a doctor's office. But it's an opportunity I think we should talk about and think about. Yeah, as a pediatrician, what you're discussing about education and schools is really impactful for me. And I think it goes even sometimes beyond technology into other factors. What we're seeing right now in wealthier neighborhoods is that 
if a school system rolls out, hey, we're going to use this new platform. By the way, you have to log on to this web page for your books and this web page for your math, et cetera. A lot of the more wealthy neighborhoods are comfortable in doing that. A lot of the underserved communities, mom and dad are at work. You literally have an elementary school kid at home by themselves trying to do all the things that are not supported by an adult. And when I think about telemedicine from a pediatric view, I often worry about it's not just the technology platform. It's also a level of comfort and education and availability that ties into that. I think local community centers are an excellent idea. And I'll touch on something that Kirsten mentioned as well, that there's a financial aspect to things. I think telemedicine eliminates some of the financial hurdles of the underserved community. I think about my patients having to come in clinic. You have to take time off. Yes. You have to figure out when you're going to go see the doctor. And even in a community center-based model, you still have to figure out when can I leave my job in order to drive to the community center to get on access. Whereas the lesser the technology, I wonder the convenience level goes up and the barriers come down. Yeah. Kirsten, I'm curious to hear your take on if telehealth is good, and I think we agree that it's good for patients and society, Why do you think telehealth has seen relatively slow uptake in the past 10 years? Obviously, this year, 2020, it saw a huge upswing. But do you think it has anything to do with limiting factors like patients, the payers, the government, and healthcare providers? I do. Benson and I often say when we're thinking about why health disparities have persisted for so long is what gets paid for is what gets done. Mm-hmm. And whether it's doctors getting reimbursed the least or medication reimbursement is the least for the most vulnerable patients. Similarly, telehealth, there hasn't been clear pathways for reimbursement. There have been hurdles to using telehealth. Unfortunately, there's still a view that telehealth is a cost driver rather than a cost saver. So when telehealth expansion is considered and supporting it by the federal government, It's viewed as if there's more telehealth, more people will get care, and some of that care will be unnecessary, and that'll just cost money. So that has been a limiting factor. I think it will remain to be seen, and this time during COVID is a good time to test whether telehealth has been a cost saver or a coster. On the other hand, I think some of these things need to be viewed over a longer term period. And this is an extreme time. We know there's still a lot of deferred care. And if we want to see this experiment come to fruition, there needs to be reimbursement and some flexibility around the types of platforms, the types of doctors and the situations when it can be used. DLA Piper is a founding member of the Preparedness and Treatment Equity Coalition, PTAC. Interesting. I know you mentioned that at the top of this podcast. Can you explain what that is? Describe the organization, its mission, and if telehealth is part of the organization's focus? Absolutely. So the Preparedness and Treatment Equity Coalition is a nonprofit organization which is supported by a number of life sciences companies, including DLA Piper. And our mission really is to identify ways to measure and ultimately change the reimbursement pathway in healthcare delivery so that achieving equity is something that is measured and paid for. There's a movement in the U.S. to pay for outcomes, pay for improving health, pay for value. When Benson and I co-founded the Preparedness and Treatment Equity Coalition, it was really thinking about, well, you can achieve average improvements in outcomes in a health system by just selecting easier patients to treat. Right. So what would a measurement look like that would say, in this provider practice, in this zip code, within this drug, 
we're seeing outcomes that are equal among different groups. Even if the overall outcome is not as good in one community versus another, if we're seeing less divergence. So key to that is collecting data. And some data is routinely collected by health systems. Race and social determinants of health are not. Mm -hmm. So as an organization, we've been hosting monthly events where we bring speakers that are diverse in a number of different ways, not just race, but in geography, also in fields from medicine to economics to social work. And then by the middle of this year, we'll be issuing a research agenda with some funding and hopefully access to data where independent researchers can look into these topics and help develop a base of evidence that would say, what would be the things that you could measure relatively easily with the data that we're already collecting that would help track our progress towards achieving greater equity within healthcare delivery? So, Benson, let me ask you this. How do you see telehealth working with data collection? And is data collection more or less feasible with telehealth? I would say that aspects of data collection are actually easier with telehealth as opposed to a in-person visit. And let me explain. In an in-person visit, you essentially have to ask the patient and go through a list of questions. So for instance, if we're collecting social determinants, you have to say, where do you live? Do you have access to food? Are you worried about clean water, safety at home, and so mm-hmm. on, job security? In a telehealth model, I believe there's more patient engagement. So if we could structure telehealth where the engagement is predominantly on the patient side, say for instance, hey, look, you're gonna hop on with the doctor. You don't have to drive anywhere, spend a half a day, but please answer these 10 questions before we start the visit. All that time is done independently by the patient without any need of a provider time or energy into that regard. That self-reported data, I think, is something that is sorely missed in healthcare. We do not collect patient-reported outcomes that frequently. It's always what's your blood pressure, what's your pain scale based on what we see. And I would be interested with telemedicine and telehealth, what we can do better to gather information that patients are willing to give at the very beginning of the visit and then at the end based on what they view as important outcomes. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Kirsten, I would love to know, do you think telehealth will narrow or expand health inequities? Applying telehealth to our current model, where there's a strong existing base of health inequities, I don't see how telehealth alone can narrow health disparities. Uh Using a telehealth model that is tailored for a vulnerable population, whether it's thinking about different reimbursement models, you know, we've talked about ways to communicate with patients, flexibility in the types of providers that can see those patients. If we were to really engineer telehealth to address health disparities, I think it could. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. I think ultimately having grown up in a lower income urban community, we used to have a healthcare center in the healthcare clinic in the middle of our neighborhood. And that's where we went. So I look at this as telehealth, whether it's in home or at the community center, as providing an opportunity to collect data and to hopefully narrow the disparity or the delta in healthcare for these vulnerable groups. Benson, what do you think about that? I worry that telehealth may worsen disparities because I think currently, at least, our view of telehealth is sometimes the fancier, the better. 
And I'll point to an experience I had while leading population health. We had a vendor that we ultimately contracted with that had a great telehealth platform. But as part of the platform, the patient needed to have equipment in their home. And that equipment comes with a small starting cost, which is not insignificant, especially if you're worried about where your next meal is going to come from. Right. So that eliminated that platform for those in our underserved communities, period. So if telehealth is structured in a way where we utilize existing technologies of the communities that we're trying to serve, we meet them where they are and decrease the barriers as much as possible. I think there's a lot of benefit. I completely agree with Kirsten around the reimbursement aspect. I think that has to change. Until that aspect changes, the things that can really allow telehealth to help our underserved, having nurse visits, having quick call-ins and check-ins from a doc, having community leaders check in with them and consider that part of their health visit, all those aren't going to happen without effective reimbursement changes. So I would say those two things, if done correctly, it could really utilize this technology in the right way. If aren't addressed, then I really worry. Just to build on Benson's point, think of a reimbursement model where a social worker could bill a telehealth visit to deal with some of the food insecurity, housing insecurity that Benson has mentioned. It would certainly be a lower cost intervention than having the physician practice try to work around those barriers. That is such a great point, Kirsten. I think as we think about telehealth and we think about healthcare disparities, We have to take the aggregate, which includes food insecurity, housing, education, and all of those issues that these communities are dealing with. I would love to have your final thoughts, Kirsten and Benson, on this issue. In order to really achieve the promise of telehealth for everybody, we can't just layer it on to an existing system that has huge inequities in care. The delivery of it needs to be targeted to the communities that we most need to serve and that could most benefit from this. And we need to see adequate reimbursement commensurate with the challenges that are faced in the community for the provider who's delivering the telehealth. From my perspective as a provider, I worry that telehealth may worsen our current environment in the way that we deliver care. And in order to overcome that, we have to change the way we practice change what we define as healthcare and who delivers that healthcare. And like Kirsten said, also change the way that reimburse and how do we fund these activities in a way that we're meeting the patient where they are as opposed to building on and trying to get them to adopt new things that are possibly more expensive that they can't afford at this time. So I think there's a lot of promise, but I that has to be done in a way that meets the needs of the patients and not necessarily the needs of the system. Yeah, I agree with that. I do think we have to go at this with optimistic caution. (laughs) And the end is yet to be seen. Telehealth is here. Obviously, it's here to stay. And we just have to figure out the best way to incorporate that telehealth into our treatment plans for these vulnerable communities. So I want to thank you all on behalf of DLA Piper for participating on this podcast and hopefully we'll be able to do another one together real soon. I hope so. Thank you. Thank you. 
All information, content, and materials contained in this podcast are for general informational purposes only. This podcast is intended to be a general overview of the subjects discussed and does not create a lawyer-client relationship. Statements and opinions are those of the individual speakers and participants and do not necessarily reflect the policies or opinions of DLA Piper LLP US. The information contained in this podcast is not and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice. No listener should act or refrain from acting with respect to any particular legal matter on the basis of this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. This podcast may qualify as lawyer advertising, requiring notice in some jurisdictions. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. DLA Piper LLP US accepts no responsibility for any actions taken or not taken as a result of this podcast.